0: I wanted to uh, talk to you today about the importance of using your mind to work for you instead of against you. You know, the Bible says as a person thinks in his heart or with our mind, that's really the way we are. And so the mind, to a large extent, determines the quality of our lives. So when we think about the mind, we're thinking about the brain, kind of. The mind and the brain are a little bit different. Somebody has said the brain is like a piano, And the mind is the pianist. The mind is what plays the brain. It's what makes the brain work like it's supposed to. But interestingly, yesterday I was reading an article called Be Brain Fit. 72 Amazing Facts About the Human Brain. And it's a very interesting article, and we know that everything that I'm about to read is true because I found this on the Internet, right? And so everything has to be true if it was on the Internet. I learned, for example, that the human brain is made up of 73% water. The brain comprises 2% of the body's total weight, so it's very small, but it uses 20% of its total energy and oxygen. The latest estimate says that our brains contain 86 billion brain cells. 25% of the body's cholesterol is in the brain. So did you know that high cholesterol is actually good for your brain? In fact, studies tell us that high cholesterol will actually reduce the risk of dementia. Now, it will cause you to have a heart attack or stroke, but... You'll be sharp as a tack when you go out, so you have to pick how you want to do it. Also, I was interested to learn yesterday that relying on a GPS, when you get in your car and you type in the address, if if you rely on a GPS system to navigate you around town, that you lose your innate sense of direction. There are neurons in your brain that actually uh, kind of fade away because you're not using them to help you get uh, direction. Your brain's capacity to store information is unlimited. The brain is 30 times more powerful than one of the world's fastest supercomputers. They just took a, one of the supercomputers of the world and they began to compare it to the human brain as far as processing information is concerned. And they learned that the brain is actually... Much more effective than the computer. Of the thousands of thoughts that a person has each day, it is estimated that 70% of our thoughts, what they call our mental chatter... You ever feel like you're having a conversation in your head, and you're kind of listening in to what people are saying up there? 70% of that mental, mental chatter is negative. It's pessimistic. And so that's certainly not good for us. And then I read something yesterday that I had heard before, but it was confirmed yesterday. And that is the brain cannot concentrate on two things at the same time. As fascinating as the brain is, and as amazing as it is, it can only focus, it can only concentrate on one thing at a time. And so what I want to do in the message today is hopefully to help us to use our brain, to use our mind, to focus on the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Now... When you have a problem in life and you're going through a situation, you have two options. You can either focus on the problem or you can focus on something else. Let's say it this way. If you are going through a battle in your life, maybe a battle with, a, with cancer or a battle at work or a battle in any other way, you can focus on the battle or you can focus on something else. And so today, I want us to think about... How we can use our minds to work for us instead of against us. So if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're continuing our study through this book. And what I have just given this morning is the strangest introduction that would ever be given for a sermon out of the book of Revelation. But I wanted to do it that way because it's a little bit different. And I want us to look at a passage this morning that is an interesting passage. But I I want us to look at it today from the perspective of how can this passage of Scripture in Revelation help me to view problems and difficulties in a different perspective. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, we've already dealt with this passage, but we read about the 144,000 Jews who were saved or who will be saved and converted to Jesus Christ during the tribulation. And in chapter 7, we read all about these. In fact, it says in verse 3, the angel said, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, Till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And there are these 12 tribes. And so... We read this passage and then beginning in verse 9, we read about all the Gentiles who will be saved during the tribulation and we're left to believe that these Jewish converts to Christianity, after they get saved, they become witnesses, they become evangelists and they begin sharing with others about the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we just kind of go on in the rest of the book of the uh, Revelation. In chapter 8, we see judgments. In chapter 9, we see judgments. We've studied chapters 10, 11, 12, 13. Today we come to chapter 14, and the interesting thing here is that we read again about these 144,000 converted Jews. And we might have been left to wonder, were it not for this passage of Scripture, whatever happened to these people? After they got saved and after they were witnessing, whatever happened to them? They seem to have kind of disappeared from the book. Well, look in chapter 14 at verse number 1. John said, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And so here in chapter 14, we read about these same 144,000 Jews. Except now, instead of being on the earth, they have been taken to heaven. They are with Jesus. They They are in heaven, and they are with God. And so, it's interesting to me that in the middle of the tribulation... When you're talking about problems, when everything that could go wrong is going wrong on the earth, and John is having the vision about all these judgments, all these people dying, all these terrible things happening on the earth, and in the middle of this vision, he, he gets a glimpse of heaven. And he sees these 144,000 Jewish people who have been saved and now they've gone from earth to heaven. They're in the presence of God and they're standing next to Jesus Christ and it's just like in the middle of the tribulation we get a view of heaven and we get a picture really of how their story ends. And their story ends just like our story will end and that is it ends in heaven and it ends in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so if you have your bulletin today. I wish you had just jot a couple of things down because I'm thinking today about in the middle of a battle. Some people here today are in the middle of a battle with your health, with your work, or in some other way. And you need to know, what am I supposed to do in the middle of this? Will this ever end? And yes, it will end. But first of all, notice this. In the the middle of the battle, we need a view of the end. We need a view of the end, and that's what the Apostle John received. He received a view of how this whole thing would end. It's interesting to me, in chapter 7, we read that 144,000 were saved. In chapter 14, we read that 144,000 are now in heaven. Everyone Jesus saved on earth ended up in heaven. It doesn't say that 143,000 made it to heaven. No, all 144,000 made it to heaven. So everybody that, that Jesus saved, Jesus ended up taking them to heaven with him. Which says to us that when you come to Jesus Christ... For salvation, not only does he save you, but he keeps you and he never loses you. And eventually, he will take you to, he- uh, to heaven to be with him. But the point I'm making really today is that in the middle of life's battles, we need to keep our focus, our mind, not just on the battle, but on the fact that one day the battle will end. You see, for these Jewish Christians, after they got saved, they were going through this tribulation But we learned from them that for them the tribulation ended and they were taken to heaven. And so they didn't have to stay in that forever. And so I don't know about for you, but in my life it is helpful for me to know when I'm going through a hard time that one day the hard time will end. And it's not going to last forever. Let me give you a scripture verse to write down. You can look it up later. But in Hebrews chapter number 12 and verse 2, it describes how even Jesus Christ, when he was going through his ultimate hard time of his death on the cross, it tells us how Jesus endured. And the scripture says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And so even as Jesus was hanging on that cross, when he could have called angels from heaven to have gotten him off from that cross and, and been freed from all that agony and pain, he endured. But how did he endure? He endured because he was thinking about a better day for the joy that was set before him. And what was going on in Jesus' mind when he was on that cross? Well... One of the things Jesus was thinking was, I'm not going to be on this cross forever. I'm here for a finite amount of time. I'm shedding my blood. I'm giving my life for the salvation of everyone who will believe. My blood will forgive every sin that will ever be committed. But eventually, I will die, and I will be buried, and I will be raised, and then I will be in heaven, and I will be with my Father, and my mission will be over. And so, for Jesus, in, in the mind of Jesus, he was thinking, I'm not always going to be on this cross. It's painful now, it's hard now, it's difficult now, but it will not last forever. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And I think we learn from that, that when we're going through these difficulties in life, if we can somehow keep our mind on the fact that these difficulties won't last forever. Certainly one day we'll be in heaven, but even in this life, most of the challenges we have in this life, maybe not all of them, but most of the challenges we have in this life, they even pass during our time on earth. They're not forever. They're temporary. And so Jesus endured. Because he could look to the joy before him, we can endure because we look to a better day, certainly to heaven, but also on this life. Uh, As a man told me many years ago, he said, John, I want to tell you something that won't mean much to you now. I was 18 years old. I was just starting out in the ministry. And he said, but I'm going to tell you something that one day will mean a great deal to you. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, I'm going to give you four letters, TTSP. I said, TTSP, that doesn't mean anything to me. He said, well, let me tell you what it means. He said, it means this too shall pass. You're not going to be going through when you get out. I wasn't even going through anything hard. I was 18. But he said, out there in life, you will. And just remember, this too shall pass. Earlier this summer when my mother was going through her chemo for the lymphoma, that was one of the things that we tried to do to encourage her was to say to her, Mom, this is not going to last forever. You've got about four months of treatment, and it's going to be tough. But it's not going to last. It's going to get over with. And I can remember one day I was in Mardell, the Christian bookstore down off the Gulf Freeway. Just kind of looking at some books one day and walking through the the store. and, And I came to the puzzle section. And I saw some good looking puzzles. And I saw one puzzle that was called Old Pumpkin Farm. And it's a it's a it's just just like it describes. It's a picture of a farm and a bunch of pumpkins out there and a pickup truck and a big white house. It's just a a beautiful fall scene, and so I said to myself, I'm going to buy that puzzle for my mom and give it to her. This was probably back in early part of June, and I said I'm going to. And so I bought it. I gave it to her, and I said, Mom, I don't know on most days if you're going to feel like working this puzzle. I said, but you may just put a piece or two together every few days. I said, but the reason I got this for you is as you go through this chemo, you're going through the chemo in the summer. But when I saw this picture, it just blessed me and it was a reminder to me that fall is coming. And so you can just work on this and be reminded by the time we get to fall... This chemo will all be over with. And so she started working on that puzzle. And I was over at their house a lot. Every time I was over there, she had put some more pieces together. And it didn't take her any time at all. Uh, She had completed that whole puzzle. I did not know that puzzle putting together is a spiritual gift. But she has it. And she can put them together fast. And she put that puzzle together... And I said to her, I said, Mom, I'm going to take that down to Hobby Lobby. And I'm going to get that frame for you. And I'll come back over here. And Dad and I, will find a place. And I got it framed and took it to their house. And my dad and I, we found a prominent place in their kitchen where she could be sitting in the den in her chair. And she could look out into the kitchen. And she, all summer long, she could see that picture, Old Pumpkin Farm. And that could be a reminder to her that fall is coming. Chemo will be over. This will soon be in the past fall is coming, fall is coming well she liked that, she got so excited about that, that she pulled out another puzzle she had been meaning to work on, it was a Christmas puzzle, this was Santa Claus and the tree and and the fireplace and a beautiful winter scene and, and, and she started working on that every day, a 500 piece puzzle, all the time I was over there, she had more pieces, more pieces she said, John, I've got this one put together, you need to go back to Hobby Lobby, get it framed for me Went back to Hobby Lobby, got it framed, put it in a prominent place in the kitchen. I said, now, Mom, every time you look at that, it's a reminder to you Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. She said, John, there's another picture I've been wanting you to frame for me. She had one of a Christmas tree with two kids, a little girl and a little boy. She said, that reminds me of Charlie Joe and little Joel. She said, I want you to take that back to Hobby Lobby. I spent all my summer and all my money at Hobby Lobby. (laughs) Getting, I mean, we, we were at my parents' house back in the middle of July hanging up these Christmas pictures. Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. Fall is coming. Fall is coming. But, you know, I think that was not only good for her. I think that was good for us because it gave us something to look forward to. And what I'm saying to you today is, as you go through your battles and your struggles and your difficulties, don't get so focused on what you're going through now that you fail to look beyond it and that you forget to remember that fall is coming. Christmas is coming. Ultimately, heaven is coming, and I think that's one of the reasons that God gave the apostle John this vision. Put yourself in John's shoes. Not only was he having a vision of this tribulation period that was going to be so hard and so painful and so bad, but John was all alone on that island in the island of Patmos, there on the Aegean Sea, having this vision. And we think about how lonely he must have been. But when he got a glimpse of these 144,000 Jews in heaven, in the presence of Jesus. Surely that encouraged him, and surely he thought, just as they are up there with Jesus, one day I too will be there. Because just like Jesus didn't lose them, Jesus won't lose me. He will keep me, and he will get me safely home. So in the middle of the battle, we need a view of the end. Second thing we need in the middle of the battle, and that is we need to become increasingly more like Jesus. When we're going through a very difficult time in our life, one of the things we need to do is is to understand that in that battle, we have an opportunity to grow spiritually in ways that we wouldn't have if we weren't going through that battle. And so I think many times when we're going through something, just human nature says, I want to hurry up and get through this test, or I want to hurry up and get over with this difficulty. I, I want to get beyond this problem. Well, we have to remember, if we're going through a problem, God has allowed it, and the primary reason God has allowed it is to grow us and to develop us in some way, and so what we want to do is to to view it as an opportunity to become increasingly more like Jesus. If you're a college football fan, well, first of all, I stood up here last week and bragged on Baylor, and last night, I learned pride comes before a fall, Right? Because Oklahoma went in the biggest comeback uh, in the history of the University of Oklahoma. They came back from a 25-point deficit to beat Baylor. And uh, anyway, the and early, uh, you know, actually talking about Hobby Lobby. Last night during the first half of the game, I went to Hobby Lobby because my mother keeps telling me to go buy her picture frames. And so it's my mother. I'll do anything for my mother. So I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Hobby Lobby during the first half of the game. And I'll get home and watch the second half. I should have gone to Hobby Lobby during the second half of the game and enjoyed the first half. But anyway, uh, Baylor got beat by Oklahoma. But earlier in the day, Alabama was playing. And their quarterback, whom I cannot pronounce his last name, his first name is Tua. And his last name is very complicated, and I can't say it. But Tua, yesterday, dislocated his hip. He broke his nose. He got carted off the field and he had to be taken by helicopter from Mississippi to Birmingham to be treated by an orthopedic doctor, and his season is over. Now, here's a quarterback that's already won one national championship. He was still on the outside looking in with a good chance to win a second national championship, and he was, had a really good chance to win the Heisman Trophy, and yesterday he got hurt. And this morning before I came to church, I had the TV on while I was eating breakfast and had it on ESPN, and it said that Tua, after that terrible injury yesterday, sent out a tweet on his Twitter page. And the tweet says, God always has a plan. God always has a plan. And when I saw that today, I thought, you know, that fella's 20 or 21 years old. He's got it figured out more than most of us who are older than that. But, the, but what he's saying is right. God always has a plan. And so you have to apply that in your life. Whatever it is that you're going through, God has a plan. And you have to view this difficulty or this discouraging time in your life not as something to just rush through, but as something, as an opportunity to grow. And I can think about times in my life I've been through things and I've said to God, I say, God, I just pray that you will Here's how I, I guess it's because I grew up in East Texas, but I say, God, I just pray that you will milk this cow dry and teach me everything I need to know and show me everything I need to learn. And God, don't let me go through this and miss. Something that I desperately need to know in my life. What I'm saying is that in the middle of the battle, we need to become increasingly more like Jesus. And so as I think about these 144,000 Jews, the amazing thing to me is not only that they got saved in the first place, and not only that they all made it to heaven safely, but the amazing thing is how much they loved Jesus Christ and how close they were to him. Now you see in your bulletin today, I've listed out five qualities that these these converted Jews had. And I could preach a whole sermon on this. I'm not going to, but let me just mention these because I think these, when we think about becoming more like Jesus, the question is, well, how can I become more like Jesus? How can I grow through this experience so that when it's over with, I'll be better off having gone through it than I would had I been exempted from it or had I never gone through it? And so let me give you five ways that you can get closer to God. Number one, intimacy with Him. Intimacy with Jesus, closest to him. Look back in verse 1. John said, then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000. That is these Jewish converts. And so there's Jesus in heaven. Where are the 144,000? They're right next to Jesus. And that says to me that in our lives... We need to be that close to Jesus. Nothing between us and Jesus. Intimacy with Him. That difficulties wouldn't drive us from Jesus, but they would bring us to Jesus. And that's the idea here. The second thing we need to grow is worship of Him. One of the ways that we can grow spiritually is by worshiping God, certainly in our corporate worship by coming to church, but also daily and privately by reading our Bibles and praying and even singing songs to God. Sometimes we sing them here in church. Sometimes we sing to God in our cars or in our homes. Look in verse number 3. It says, They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. So what are these 144,000 Jews doing in heaven? They're not only close to Jesus, but they're worshiping him. They're praising him, they're thanking him, they're honoring him for saving them, for changing their lives, for getting them safely home. And that says to me that God values our worship of him. Last night I was I have a few pastors that sometime I'll just pull up their Twitter page to see if they've said anything good. And one of the pastors that I pull up sometime, he pastors a church in Alabama. And he, uh, he sent out a tweet yesterday. And in his tweet, he was referencing an old hymn that many of us remember. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And when I read that yesterday, last night, I just kind of got that tune in my mind. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And he said in his tweet, he said, you know, as a pastor, he said, I'm so aware of how many sins I have committed in my life that I don't feel comfortable standing before a congregation publicly and judging other people for the sins that they have committed. And then he quoted that verse, not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. So sometimes... God will just put a song in our in our mind. I can remember one time when I was going through a very difficult time in my life. It was back before we had moved into the permanent worship center. Our offices were still down there where the school is now. And one night I was up at church, I guess about 7 o'clock one evening and a little later than normal. And and I was either listening to a CD or I was listening to the radio. I can't remember, but a song came on by Greater Vision, great Southern Gospel group who's been here several times and... Uh, And the name of the song is, God Wants to Hear You Sing. And up until this time, I had never heard that song. But when I heard the song that night, God spoke to me through it. And it was like God said, John, this song applies to you. Now, during the difficulty, is when I want to hear you sing and when I want to hear you worship me. Anybody can trust me and praise me and serve me when it's easy. But when it's hard, that's a whole other different thing. Let me just read you a little bit of this song. It says, Their chains were fastened tight. Down at the jail that night, still Paul and Silas would not be dismayed. They said, it's time to lift our voice, sing praises to the Lord. Let's prove that we will trust Him, come what may. The second verse says, He loves to hear our praise on our cheerful days, when the pleasant times outweigh the bad by far. But when the suffering comes along, and we still sing Him song." That is when we bless the Father's heart. Now listen to the chorus. God wants to hear you sing when the waves are crashing around you, when the fiery darts surround you, when despair is all you see. God wants to hear your voice when the wisest man has spoken and says your circumstance is as hopeless as can be. That's when God wants to hear you sing. And so I think we can learn something from these 144,000, and that is that we grow closer to God, not only by being with Him, but also by worshiping Him. And then purity, God wants us to be pure. Look in verse 4, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now you study that passage in the commentaries, and you're going to get a lot of possible meanings for what that is. Some say, this is literal. These 144,000 were celibate. They had never been married. They were literal virgins. Others say, no, that doesn't, is not necessarily what it means, but it means that they were pure. They may have been married, but they, they were pure and devoted to their wives. Others say, no, we don't think it's talking about literal women and being a physical virgin at all because this same language and even the word virgins in other places in the Bible is used talking about spiritual purity, And even in the Old Testament, uh, God talked about his people, Israel, committing adultery against him. Well, he wasn't necessarily talking about physical adultery. He was saying they had committed adultery because they were worshiping other gods. And so there are some scholars who say what this is a reference to is the fact that these 144,000 were spiritually pure. Now, I don't know which one it means because it just, I mean, you have to determine how how you try to interpret this. But the one thing we can take from it is these 144,000 were pure. And we can apply that to We do know how we're supposed to apply that to our lives. We're supposed to be pure. Sexually pure, morally pure, mentally pure. We're supposed to be uh, spiritually pure. Pure in every way. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so God wants us to be pure. He doesn't want there to be any sin in our lives. Any sin of any kind. And I'm kind of glad that I'm not sure which one of those it literally means. Because in my life, I can just apply all those to me and you can to you. God wants us to be pure. And then another way we can grow uh, increasingly more like Jesus is by obeying Him, obedience to Him. Look at the second half of verse 4. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Well, the sentence before that says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And so wherever Jesus goes, there go these 144,000. They're following him. And that says to me, we need to do the same thing. Wherever he leads, we ought to go. And then the next quality they had, they had integrity like Jesus in verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And so we need to have integrity in our lives. What I'm saying here, and I could wish I had time to expound on that more. But what I'm saying here is that in the battles of life, We need to become increasingly more like Jesus, and we need to view difficulties, hardships, setbacks, pain, whatever it is, not as something to escape or to get through or when will it ever end and I can get over this. No. To view these as opportunities. And again, as I said, to know whatever it is you're going through today. How many of you would say at this time in your life, either you or somebody you love in your family is going through a difficult time? Raise your hand. That's virtually everybody in this room. So how are we going to look at it? Something we're going to just fight, rush through? No. God, you've allowed this into my life. Tua was right. God, you always have a plan. He's lost his hope for the Heisman, his hope for a national championship. He's lost all that. But what does he say? He said God has a plan, and God's plan is, is bigger than winning a Heisman trophy or winning a national championship. So God, milk this cow dry. Teach me everything I need to know. Make me more like Jesus Christ. Now, you still listen? Say Amen. Remember at the beginning when I made the statement that as amazing as the human brain is, it can only focus on one thing at a time. You can't concentrate on two things at a time. You can try to do that, but you can't. You can only truly focus on one thing at a time. Your problem or God, heaven, Jesus, the good that he's doing in your life. This past Thursday night, Billy Graham's oldest daughter, Gigi, was here, and she spoke at our Something Special for Women uh, evening, and is just a, an amazing program. She did such a good job. It was her second time to speak for us. Well, before the program, I was talking to her just for a few minutes and just seeing how she was doing and how her family's doing, and, and uh, of course, her father's just one of my ultimate all-time heroes, you know, growing up. If you grew up uh, in the world I grew up in, or even in a, in a Christian home at all, how could Billy Graham not have been someone that you just esteemed and revered? And I certainly have and still do. So I was asking her questions about her dad and, and you know, what he liked to eat and things like that. I mean, I'm always trying to learn these things about, about people. I think it's very interesting. In fact, uh, one of the things I had read about Billy Graham was that he liked to eat those little Vienna sausages in a tin can. And I said that one Sunday year, after he died. I said that in one of my sermons. And the next day I got to work and somebody had put one on my desk and said, if you'll eat that, you'll preach like him. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe I should be eating that. I don't know. But, but I, I'm fascinated with little, thing, little nuggets like that that you could only get from somebody who knew him well. And so we were just talking. And, and she said, John, I'm going to tell you something that happened one night, not too long before my dad died. She said, of course, he was confined to his home for the last few years of his life, and he had 24-hour assistance, so there were people there helping him. She said, but I only live about 10 minutes from my parents, and so she said, I went by their house all the time, and even after my mom died, she said, I would go by and check on my dad all the time and spend time with him, and she said, one evening or maybe one afternoon, she said, I was at my dad's house, and he was in his bed, and I had gone in there and talked to him for a few minutes, of course, by this time now Dr. Graham's vision is almost gone. His ability to hear is he was not completely deaf, but he, he had difficulty hearing. Um, he couldn't i mean he just he was ninety nine for one thing, but he was he had all kinds of health issues going on and so one day she was just standing next to his bed, and they were talking and and she said he was kind of alert and then he would go to sleep and alert and then he would go to sleep and they had kind of said goodbye for that visit and she said, Daddy, I love you and he said, I love you and she said, John, I just thought to myself well, he's going to sleep which will be good for him and I need to go and run some errands which will be good for me because there's some things I need to do and so she said, I just kind of patted him on his hand and I was walking out of his bedroom to go get in my car and run some errands and she said, when I got to the bedroom door he called me, said, Gigi, come here for just a minute. So she went back to him and, and she said, What is it, Daddy? And Dr. Graham said, Gigi, this is totally out of the blue. He said, You have to remember to focus. And she thought that was a strange thing for him to say. And she said, Well, focus on what, Daddy? Now, this is Billy Graham. On his deathbed. And he said, You have to remember to focus on the cross and on the person of Jesus Christ. And then he went to sleep and she left. She told me that story the other night, and it was like God took those words from her from her dead, and then to to just put it in my heart and in my mind. And it was like We have just received from Billy Graham the secret to how he died in peace. He was on his deathbed, wife already gone to heaven, kids scattered all over the world, can't do anything for himself. Can't even see much or hear much, and you wonder what was on Billy Graham's mind? What was he thinking? How did he keep his sanity? And how did he keep his peace? As life was ebbing away, what was he doing? He was focusing on the cross and he was focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. And when Gigi told me that, I thought of that verse in Isaiah 26. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And I went home, I think it was the next day when I actually wrote that in my journal. And one of the things that I wrote in my journal as I was just describing that conversation with Gigi, I thought, God, in those words, Billy Graham has given us the secret of living and the secret of dying. Not to focus on the problem or the ailment or the pain or the loneliness or the hurt or the what if or the where is everybody or why would God allow this. None of that's going to do you any good. But to focus on the cross and on the person of Jesus Christ because we have a promise from Him if we'll put our minds on Him and trust Him with all of our hearts that He will give us peace. Amen? Father, I thank You that in the midst of this tribulation vision that the Apostle John received, you gave him this view of heaven and the 144,000 safely home. And God, certainly, that must have encouraged John for him to know that's where I'm headed, that's where I'll be, that's who I'll be with. Jesus didn't lose them and he won't lose me. With your head bowed and eyes closed today, we all raised our hands saying, Hey, it's either me. Or somebody close to me who's going through something difficult and painful and hard. And yet today from Revelation chapter 14, we have learned that if we will change our focus, we can have the peace for which our hearts crave and long for. Would you just ask God today to help you to focus on the cross, to focus on the person of Jesus Christ, to remember the words of Tua God always has a plan and friend I'm saying to you that thing you're going through today whatever it is, is it is part of God's plan for your life you say well John it's a, I brought it on myself well it can still become part of God's plan for your life God can cause all things to work together for good even things that, you, that we may have brought on ourselves it's part of God's plan May not have been part of God's original plan, part of God's plan now. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do? What are you going to focus on? Who are you going to seek to honor? Would you affirm your faith right now and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that even now you have a plan for me. And I believe that you're going to bring something good out of this situation that I'm going Now, some here today, God brought you to this service so that you could get saved, so that you could receive Jesus Christ. That may be the reason He's allowed you to go through what you're going through now, to get your attention, and to help you to see that you're not as strong as you thought you were, you're not as independent as you want to be, you're not self-sufficient at all. You need Jesus. And so today, would you pray this prayer if you want to know for sure that you're saved? Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. In your name I pray, and all the people said, amen and amen.